John chapter 15. It's been a while, but we're back into our study of the gospel of John together, picking up John 15, looking specifically at verses 9 through 11. John 15, verses 9 through 11. Actually, 9 through 17. (laughs) John 15, 9 through 17. As you uh, turn there, I want to remind you that Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. And at the end of chapter 14, there's this, this little line that seems a little strange. Where Jesus, in the middle of his speech, says, Rise, let us go from here. Scholars key in on this and wonder, like, oh, are there multiple farewell discourses? What's going on here? All it is is a transition from the upper room where they were to the garden where he would end up and pray. And what's fascinating about that little detail is it explains the likely reason why Jesus reached for this particular metaphor, the vine and branches. Vineyards were prevalent across the hillsides of Palestine. And so when Jesus would make his way to that spot to pray, that garden, he likely would have been walking through a vineyard to get there. And so he reaches for the closest analogy that he has. This familiar sight to them of a vine with all of its branches and its clusters of grapes. And we saw several weeks ago that the expectation then that Jesus has of all who would follow him is that that they're going to derive their life from him. They're going to get their life from him. And they're going to bear fruit. But the interesting thing is that the fruit has not yet been defined. All we saw several weeks ago was that those who are in Christ get their life from Him, and that life shows itself in some type of fruit, some type of outcome. We have an analogy, but no explanation. We have an illustration, but no application. Here in these verses, Jesus will apply his analogy. He's going to explain his illustration. And this is a very important question. If all those who derive life from Christ bear fruit, what is that fruit? Verses 9 through 17 answer. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. What does this fruit like? look like? How do we cultivate it? We have a, a beautiful uh, picture. This, this vine and its branches and these clusters of grapes. Yeah, but what does it mean? I don't know about you, but I, the way that I, I grew up, the culture in which I was reared, didn't really value art. Like, I see paintings, and as cultured as I want to be, I often don't know what I'm looking at. I mean, seriously, the, the Christian school that I went to growing up, like it had paintings in the book, you know, like the little, and my teacher skipped those. Like we never talked about them. So I never really know what to look for. And it always blew my mind when I'd go to like the National Gallery of Art in D.C. and see somebody staring at a painting for what seemed like hours. And I'm like, what are they looking at? Finally, a few years ago, I did read a book on how to interpret art. And guess what? I still don't totally get it. <laughs> So all you culture types, you can look at a picture, you know what it's pointing at. For those of us who need some help, I'm really glad that Jesus here gives an explanation. All we really have in verses 1 through 8 is just this really beautiful picture of this vine and its fruit production, and and Jesus gives only a hint of an application when he says this, um, unless you abide in me, you won't bear any fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. So all we know is life comes from him. You got that part of the, of the picture. But his greater point isn't just that you get your life from Christ, but that you're actually going to, to give it out. You're going to display it. You're going to grow in certain ways that will evidence to others around you that there really is this life from Christ, this, this fruit that's coming out. And here he actually is explaining what that fruit is. It would be so easy for you to read verses 1 through 8 and then get to verses 9 through 17 and think that it's something different. But I want to just draw some parallels for you. Jesus is intentionally linking these things together. Uh, First, both sections, verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 17, speak of remaining or abiding. Did you see that in both? You remember that? You see um, verses 4 through 7 talk about abiding, verses 9 through 10 talk about abiding, and then Jesus will talk about fruit that abides or remains in verse 16. Both sections, the, the, the picture and what I'm calling its explanation, hold up fruitfulness as the disciples' goal. So they both talk about bearing fruit. And then also both tie such fruitfulness to prayer. In verses 7 through 8, he talks about praying to produce fruit, and then we see it again in verse 16. And then both are also centered around a change. There's this change. Um, Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant as illustrated by the fact that he claims to be the vine. The vine was always Israel. Now he's saying, I am the vine. 
And then you see it, this change of things in the latter part, where he says, you were slaves, but now you're my friend. Something different is happening now. You see the relationships? You, you can't read verses 9 through 17 apart from an understanding of the expectation of bearing fruit in verses 1 through 8. So the question is, what is this fruit? And uh, bottom line up front, the fruit expected is love for one another. Like of all the things that you think would be the fruit, faithful Bible study and prayer, giving and contributing to a local church, uh, missions, whatever. The fact that Jesus would describe the fruit as love for one another is fascinating. It should pique your interest. This is the main thing, it seems, that he's looking for in the life of those who get life from him. And not just love for the lost, love for one another. So, this text is about how life in Christ leads to one another love. How life in Christ leads to one another love. The root is life in Christ. If you're not resting in Christ, getting your energy from Christ, as we talked about last week, even at Easter, you're not going to produce the fruit. But he's assuming that you are getting your life from Jesus, that you are resting in Him, and if that's the case, if your root is there, you're going to produce this fruit of one another love. And, and it happens for us practically in two steps. That's what we're going to look at. These, these two steps to one another love. I'll give them to you ahead of time. The first is living in his love by obedience. If this one another love will be cultivated, it will happen first by us living in his love by obedience. Living in his love by obedience. You'll see that in verses 9 through 11. And the second step in this process that Jesus explains for us is living out his love with one another. Living in his love by obedience, living out his love with one another. So, living in, living out. 9 through 11, 12 through 17. Notice the first step in this movement, in verses 9 through 11. Living in his love by obedience. Now, what's going to happen here in these few verses is that Jesus is going to hold up for us an analogy. Uh, like you're, He's going to show you similarities between two relationships. It's like He's going to give you the picture of His relationship with His Father, the Son's relationship with the Father, and He's going to hold up beside it the picture, the ideal picture of the Son's relationship with His people. Do you get what I'm saying by analogy? He wants you to understand your relationship with Him as something similar to His relationship with His Father. Listen out for it as you look at the text again. He says, as the Father has loved me. That's a preposition of comparison. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. Listen to this again, the comparison. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Do you see the comparison? He said, hey, picture number one, 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Picture number two. Just as you are to continue in my love through obedience, so also I have continued in his love through obedience. Having held up the two pictures, knowing that there's an analogous relationship between the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for his people, Jesus entrusts us with a responsibility that we otherwise would not have been aware of, and that is this. Though I love you, you have a responsibility, notice the imperative there, to, listen to this, abide in my love. Abide in my love. You remember what the word abide means? It's just the verb form of the noun abode, (laughs) a house. To, To live in, to make oneself at home in a particular place. We, we made that exceedingly clear. I think sometimes it's remain or stay, but the main idea here is that of being at home. What does it look like to continually be at home in the love of Jesus? Jesus assumes that there's some activity involved in one who is at home in him. How do you know, for example, that you're at home in a particular place or locale? There's just certain things that you just do that characterize this as your place. You open the refrigerator without asking anybody. You throw your clothes wherever you want. You clean or don't clean based on who you have coming over. It's your house. You live there. There are activities that mark it as yours, as opposed to you visiting at someone else's house. There are certain activities that mark someone as at home. Jesus is saying there is a particular activity that marks someone as at home with the love that I have for them. And that particular activity, don't be scared by this, but read the text for what it says, is what? Obedience. What marks someone as continually at home in the love of Jesus? The text says they keep his commandments. Remember the pictures. This picture of Jesus' love for his own is matched by The Father's love for His Son. How did Jesus make Himself at home with the Father's love? What did He do to evidence that He was at home in the Father's love? It was none other than obeying Him. He loved to obey His Father. This was the way that He would act this out. In fact, Jesus would say in John 4, 34, do you remember this? The disciples are concerned when he's ministering to the woman at the well in the middle of of the day in the heat. They're like, we need to go get something to eat. And he's like, I don't need anything to eat because my food is, listen to this, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Exertion of obedience was actually energizing for the Son. 
And he assumes then that if you're deriving life from Christ, if you're getting life from Christ, that the exertion of obedience to him is also an energizing thing. You notice the scientific fact that to get more energy, you have to exert energy. I've heard, I've heard it said, it seems anecdotal, but people say, well, if your energy's low, it's because you, you just really need to exercise. And that doesn't make a whole heap of sense to me. Because it would just seem that if you're actually going to expend energy, that you're losing it, you're not getting it. It's kind of like saying, all right, if you need more gas in the tank, go drive around a little bit. My gas tank don't work that way. But it's a crazy thing, the human body. Harvard Medical School scientists explain why the exertion of energy actually leads to more energy. There's going to be some scientific jargon here. The medical professionals around you can explain, but this is fascinating. To begin with, here's why energy produces energy, the exertion of energy produces energy. When you exert energy, cellular level changes occur inside your body. Exertion spurs your body to produce more mitochondria. Now, does anybody remember that from biology class? None of you. So, uh, here's the cheat sheet. The mitochondria are the powerhouse of cells. It's like these little, little batteries that are in your bloodstream. When you exert energy, your body produces more batteries. Exertion spurs your body to produce this, and these mitochondria create fuel out of glucose from the food that you eat and oxygen from the air you breathe. And so the more of them that you have, the more it increases your body's energy supply. But that's not all. When you exert yourself and exercise, it boosts oxygen circulation inside your body. And this increase in oxygen not only supports the mitochondria's energy production, it allows your body to function better and to use its energy more efficiently. What you get also is exercise-induced increase in hormone levels that make you feel more energized. Dopamine, that, that feeling of joy, I know it doesn't seem like it, but it actually happens when you exert yourself. Isn't it strange? It seems that Jesus here has already assumed, for example, that we're going to like, eat the right nutrients and get rest in him. But what he's saying is, when, when you're making yourself at home in me, you're actually going to find energy from obeying me. If this seems far-fetched, just listen to his own explanation of what he's saying. I get it. It seems radical. Look at verse 11. These things, what things? The stuff he just said. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So he's telling them that if they live out his love through obedience, they're going to get his joy. What is his joy? Well, we already saw it. Jesus loved. He got joy from obeying his Father. He says, you're going to get my joy, and my joy in you will be 
full. I, I don't know. I'll just ask you a question for a second. How do you think of Jesus? Like, what do you think his default disposition is? Do you think of a, a, an angry Jesus? A stern Jesus? A jovial Jesus? A happy Jesus? Have you ever thought about it? Like, I know what my default disposition is. I always look angry at the world. I have to put, like, smiley faces on stuff to remind myself to smile. Oh. <laughs> like, my face has a problem. And sometimes it's easy for me to think that, yep, Jesus was the dour type too. And yet, the fact that he would promise them his joy implies something, that he was a joyful individual. Please don't write me an angry email. I mean this, like I'm... You can, you can like the chosen or not like the chosen. I'm not making a theological commentary on whether or not you should watch the show. But if you have decided to watch the show, I think one thing that stuns me about it is the joyful disposition it ascribes to Jesus. It rings true to me theologically, that part does, when I read passages like this. And it makes me think that when he says, my joy can be your joy and your joy will be full, the guys are like, oh yeah, this is awesome. Have you ever thought about it? I know he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But he was still more deeply driven by joy. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He even went to the cross because it made him happy. Like, yeah, he had hardship. Yeah, he suffered. But Jesus just wasn't like dragging himself through life doing what the Father told him to do. Like he enjoyed the Father's commands. They were life-giving to him. Obedience is the divine recipe for blessing and happiness and joy. Friends, I, Satan's probably most masterful tactic is to trick us into believing that life stinks when you do what God wants you to do. And that your own way is the true path to happiness. The way David put it is astounding. In Psalm 119, 11, he calls God's commands, listen to this, the joy of my heart. You know Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And the whole thing is about how good God's rules and laws are. And he didn't even have access to the indwelling, ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit like we do. And he was pumped over God's law. For him, it was the recipe for happiness. And this makes sense. It makes total sense. Like, God made the world not just good, but very good. Right? Read Genesis 1 and 2. 
And he gives a great command. He says, don't eat of this tree. Do eat of this one. And if you eat of this one, you'll have eternal life. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of beautiful garden, nice, clear, crystal rivers, fruit abounding on every hand, and being able to eat of this one particular tree that promises blessing for the rest of eternity. Nothing sounds terrible about that to me, but let me tell you what is terrible. When they do their own thing and all hell breaks loose. Evil, bad, sorrow, pain, and sickness are the byproducts of rejecting the divine recipe. And so what has Jesus done? By entering our realm to remedy our rebellion, he would endure the cost of our sin. He would evidence the favor of God on those who would trust in him by rising again from the grave. Also with that, energizing them for their own obedience in this way. He remedied it, and he has restored to us the capacity to obey. He's given us like the potential again to follow the recipe. And it is our highest privilege. He says, <laughs> not only that may my joy be in you, not only will you know the joy of obedience, but listen to this. He adds that your joy will be full. I love that. Will be full. Full means full. <laughs> it's, it's like the other day at my house. I used this coffee machine and I wanted to make a double, but we have these tiny mugs for some reason. I have no idea why. And I'm like, I'm going to get me a double. And I hit the double button. And then all of a sudden, I turn around, and it's just overflowing into the coffee machine onto the new cabinets. That's full. He said, you're not getting an espresso shot of joy. You're getting the overflowing Americano. It's to the brim. The Jewish rabbis of the time were right to point out that the reason why people didn't experience joy is because despite the good things that God would try to give, it was all tainted by death and disease and rebellion. And so do you know what the faithful first century follower of Yahweh was looking for? He was looking for God to come and eliminate all the death, all the destruction, all the rebellion. And so, like when we studied the 12, the minor prophets a few years ago, they kept describing this like awesome day where you'd have everything that you needed. It'd be like wine and gladness and happiness and feasting and celebration. And Jesus is saying, like, I've come so that you can obey, so that even right now you can already have that kind of joy. This is how you live in my love. And I get it. We say things like, oh, I don't know. I don't like some of the commands of Jesus. They're so unpleasurable. But you understand, right, that good rulers and leaders give commands for the ultimate good and flourishing of their people? Man, good parents, they give good commands to their kids. And the kids don't always understand it, but eventually they do. All right, man, thank God my parents didn't allow me to play in the street. It seemed so cool when I was a kid, but now I get it. 
That was awesome. I'm alive. Good legislators, I know you can whine and moan about all the rules the United States government has, but just having been in a second or third world country, I don't even know. I'm grateful for the United States, like stoplights and traffic laws. Two thumbs up, actually. <laughs> I'm grateful that people have to throw away their trash in a trash bin. Walking down the streets of Thailand, I mean, people just throw garbage everywhere. Like, oh, I can't believe I have to take my trash out to the street. It's not a bad law. <laughs> Good cooks, they command things. And you follow their recipe, you get good stuff. Good doctors, they tell you to do stuff that actually helps you. They exercise their authority, they give you some commands, and you do what they say, you live. Good personal trainers, good interior designers, like the list could go on and on. Like people give you good commands, and you do it. And somehow we've been tricked into believing that what God has commanded us to do is somehow bad. The parody of this, seen with awesome clarity, is in George Orwell's 1984. I won't spoil the ending for you, but I'll give you the premise if you've never read it. Basically, you have this totalitarian ruler called Big Brother, who's done nothing through the book, but oppress and terrify his subjects. But he nevertheless orders them to love him. Everybody's commanded to love Big Brother. And the tension of the book is to discover whether or not the hero will come to love Big Brother. Many an atheist has read that book and said, oh, Christianity is nothing other than people buying into the fact that that, that God is the totalitarian ruler and that people will somehow give up their, their freedom, their autonomy to him. God is not big brother. He's good father. And it is a joy to do what he says. Friends, I, application simple. You trust the goodness of God's commands. Obedience. Is its own form of energy. It's its own source of endurance. Sometimes I think that we're like sitting around, like waiting, like, man, if God would just give me the divine energy to do X, Y, or Z, I would do it. And the crazy thing is, you're a limited free moral agent and you could make yourself do a lot of stuff. And if you would just do that, you would actually find the energy to keep doing it. In some cases, the obedience may precede the energy. You've been enabled by the Spirit, but whether you feel it or not, is not the condition of obedience. Maybe, maybe the feeling follows the obedience. And we know that to be true of the whole exercise conundrum. People rarely feel it, but every time they finish it, Nine times out of ten, I don't know, making it up, seems true. They're glad they did. By faith, we need to accept such obedience as a recipe for joy. 
It's not the great sacrifice. It's not the great obligation. Obedience is the great opportunity. Here's, let me give you some practical advice. If any of God's commands seem so unpleasant to you, like run through the list in your mind real quick. If you're like, oh, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. That's like raw broccoli to me. I don't like it. I'd have you ask yourself two questions. First, you need to verify whether or not it actually is his command. Talk to somebody that knows the Bible well. But if there's something that you think that God wants you to be doing, and you're a believer, and this just seems absolutely like a root canal to you, it may not actually be something that God has commanded. You need to verify whether or not God's commanded it. Sometimes we pick up stuff that other people have said is God's law that's not God's law. Just trying to help you. But let me take it a step further. Let's say that you verify that it actually is God's command. You're like, well, okay, yeah, that is in the Bible. Well, maybe you need to discuss with someone you trust the joy of obedience in the area with which you struggle. Let me just use an example. I have no axe to grind. But let's just say uh, in this particular culture, sexual immorality just seems like the thing. Like, oh my goodness, who wouldn't want to just freely express themselves sexually at any and all times? That seems like a terrible idea. Like, why would I want to be restricted to one person for one lifetime? If that seems so terrible to you, I would encourage you to speak to someone who has submitted to God's law in that area and ask them how their experience has been. I could give you testimony that I am so glad to be with one woman for one lifetime. And I've spoken to many, a young man who has found the emptiness and hollowness of going from person to person and treating them like objects. If you're struggling for obedience in a particular area, you may do well to talk to others who have already found joy in it. So the first step to producing the fruit of love, now we haven't even got to loving one another, by the way, but we have to take this first step. The first step is to love obedience. The first step to producing the fruit of love is to live in that love through obedience until you find the commands of God to be a good thing. You're not going to find his command to love to be a good thing. So the first thing is living in that love through obedience. The second step here is living out his love with one another. Living out his love with one another. Now, verses 12 through 17, you're going to notice something. I'm not going to read the whole passage again. But I want you to notice what the fancy rhetorical people that study the Bible call an inclusio, from which we get the word inclusion. The first century writers loved this. They thought that this made great literature. When you could start a topic with a, with a key phrase and then end it with a key phrase, and that like kind of marked it off. It's like brackets. Notice the inclusio, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Then you've got all these verses, 13, 14, 15, 16. And now notice the end of the inclusio, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see it? So whatever is in the middle there is about loving one another. This is what you need to know. Like for Jesus, like this... All these commandments, plural, have now been summed up or expressed primarily through one commandment, singular. 
You notice that? He was talking about, you keep my commandments, plural. Now he's saying, keep my command. And what is the main command that he's concerned with in this context? It is none other than loving one another. Clearly for Jesus, like loving one another is like the one thing that has the biggest impact on everything else. One of the the most intriguing productivity books that I've read in the last few years is actually under that title, The One Thing. The One Thing. I resisted reading it for a long time because the whole subtitle is just basically, all right, if you do this one thing, you're going to have, and (laughs) this is a huge promise. (laughs) He says, if you do this one thing, you're going to have less distractions, less stress, and more productivity and more enjoyment in life. And I'm like, whoa. That's a big promise. One thing is going to fix (laughs) all the distractions of life, and then that same one thing is going to give me all the enjoyments of life. This is is, uh, too good to be true. But I saw that it had sold 27 million stinking copies, and I just like, like, man, a lot of people are buying into this. It was New York Times bestseller. It was USA Today bestseller, and I'm like, all right. I'll bite. And it's an interesting principle. I, I think I, in large part, agree with it. Basically, the premise of the book, are you ready? I'm going to save you 20 bucks. <laughs> Some activities that we do have greater impact than others. So do the higher impact activities first. That costs $20. You, you hold on to this. Some activities that we do have higher impact than others. Therefore, do the higher impact activities first. It actually resonates well with Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1, who prays, remember that? He prays for the Philippians uh, that they would have discernment uh, to know the things that are excellent and so be approved and ready for the day of God. The things that are excellent as opposed to the things that are good or the things that are medium. Like he prayed that they would do the best things. It's, It's like... Jesus here knew that, that the loving one another command in particular would, would be the one thing that would have the greatest impact on everything else. Jesus is concerned indeed about all the commandments. He's not saying that the other stuff doesn't matter. He's just saying that in this context, loving one another is going to be uniquely impactful in the mission that I've given you. He already said it back in chapter 13. Do you remember this? Where he said, hey, love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. Like it was the new command that he gave. Like there's a unique priority. (coughs) There's a unique impact to this. So that being said, if loving one another is the big deal, what does it look like? What does it look like to love one another in this way? Like, if this is the one thing, what do we do about it? Well, there's, there's three components. I don't like subpoints, so this is rare. But I want to give you the, the three components of this one another love that Jesus will flesh out here to try to make this as practical but as principled as possible. The first component of this love, what does it look like? Well, first of all, it's sacrificial. Look at verses 12 13 in the beginning of 14. This is my commandment that you love one another 
as I have loved you. Okay, well, how has Jesus loved us? Look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends. Notice that. He says, love as I've loved you. How have I loved? Well, I've loved my friends in the greatest way possible. And what is that? That's to pay the highest cost. And what's the highest cost? To lay down your life for somebody. Commentators like to point out that philosophers like Aristotle and Plato would tout the values of love for a friend to the point of death. But friend, no philosophy class is needed here. We know that friendship, like real friendship, as rare as it is, I don't care how many Facebook friends you have, but like the real ones, it's a costly endeavor. It takes sacrifice, time, energy, reputation. Sometimes you say hard things, friends do. Sometimes they encourage you when you're down and enter into your misery. Sometimes they tolerate your annoying idiosyncrasies. Uh, Friendship is not just convenient. It's not just, I'm going to say it as a double negative. It's not just not being angry at somebody. I think sometimes we think, oh, I'm cool with so-and-so, therefore they're my friend. No. (laughs) Friendship is more proactive than that. It's costly. And the highest expression of such friendship, like the highest cost, like the more a friend pays, the better a friend he is or she is. And Jesus said, I've paid the highest price. I didn't just sit with you. I didn't just weep with you. I died for you. The friendship that we're looking for here is sacrificial. Jesus posits the sacrifice of his life as the standard of love for one another. So basically what he's saying is you should be willing to sacrifice everything for the good and well-being of a friend, of another. So just... Let's back it up for a second. Whatever this love for one another looks like, it is at least sacrificial. So here's the deal. Evaluate your own love for one another for a second. If it's just more like you floating downstream, like you're in the lazy river and you're just kind of like floating along with everybody else, it's probably not the love that he's talking about here. This is a fighting against the current. This is a sacrificing of one's own self and energy. This love is costly. It's sacrificial. Again, I'm just trying to dispel the myth that not being angry with other people is somehow loving them. That's not love. That's just you not being a jerk. Love is proactive and sacrificial. So this love for one another is sacrificial. It's also, here's another aspect of it, it's communal. The love is communal. By that I mean community, inclusive, relational, whatever terms you want to use. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, pause, pause. (laughs) You hear that and you're like, I don't like that kind of friendship. That sounds conditional. So Jesus is telling me that he's only going to be my buddy if I do everything that he says. That's not what the text is saying. Grammar check, ready? First, he doesn't say you will be my friends if you do what I command you. He says you are my friends. In the original language, Jesus is making what we call in English a declarative statement. You are my friends. You are my friends. 
Not you will be my friends. If you say you will be my friends, it makes you wonder like, okay, well, what do I have to do to get in on that? It's present tense. You are my friends. And then the part that's a little harder to see, but just trust me for a second. If you do what I command you, is a conditional clause in the original language that implies agreement. Greek conditions have these weird classes. It's like the hardest thing, not the hardest thing, but it's one of those things that I still don't fully understand. I just know this, that some if-then statements in the original language assume that the if statement is true. Some of them assume that it's not true. Let me put it this way. In this particular case, you could understand it this way. You are my friends since you obey what I've commanded you. Sometimes you can say if in such a way like, well, if you do this, and it assumes that it might not happen. Greek has this flexibility where it can actually say things in such a way where it assumes the if part of the statement is true. Jesus is assuming something to be true about his friends. You are my friends since you do what I command you. He's not looking around at any of the 11 thinking, you guys are out of line. The one guy who was out of line has already left. He is actually affirming them saying like, Hey, you're not rebelling against me. You're not resisting my authority. You are my friends. We're on good terms. You're doing what I've commanded you. You've stuck with me through thick and thin. You're with me right now as I'm about to go to the cross. Like he is actually saying that you are my friends. But don't lose sight of the huge, stunning word, friend. Not you're my employees, but you're my friends. Now, The reason why he still affirms the friendship on the basis of what I've commanded you is because clearly Jesus is a superior. Have you ever been friends with? Let me ask it to you this way. It's a unique life experience. Thank God I've been able to have it a few times. Have you ever been friends with someone who is in a position of authority over you? Maybe some of you know what it's like to, at end of life, have your own father or mother be a friend to you. Like, some of you don't, I get that, but just follow it for a second. Like, there comes a point in time where it's just no longer the father-son relationship, but like, this is the person that I want to hang out with. I've seen it, there were a couple of of teachers that I had in high school. They were definitely my teachers, they were, but one of them worked with my dad, so we worked together on the wall, laying block and brick in the heat of the summer. He would go with us on family vacation, he and his family. And I, I remember this, man, this godly man, my Bible teacher in my Christian school, um, and us hanging out and having like life conversations and us boogie boarding together in like the Atlantic Ocean. And, I mean, like, and yet there was always this position of authority. I never wanted to break that. Jesus is acknowledging a real relationship, but he's not flattening it out so that like, we're, we're equals. He's still an authority that needs to be obeyed. But he's saying, you are my friends since you do what I have commanded you. But notice how he emphasizes the friendship. He's like, hey guys, you're not slaves, you're friends. He says it in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, doulos, slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Listen to me, friends. Like, I think sometimes the word servant or slave in the New Testament gets watered down so much because we're so, like, itching to make application. 
That we say, oh yeah, servants obey your masters. That's just like the employee-employer relationship. It's not. It's not. It's just not the same. Don't think Jesus here is saying, hey, you're not like my employees. He's saying, I'm not treating you as slaves. Slaves were of a different class. They were, they were treated as objects. It's estimated that there are 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. And every one of them were treated as property. You could do, under Greco-Roman law, anything, and I mean anything, that you wanted to do with a slave. And there would be no repercussions. You don't talk to slaves. They're like, just like you don't like talk to your cow in the field. Like it's just, they're objects. And Jesus is saying, you're not slaves. This isn't just about us getting junk done. I'm sharing with you everything that I know from my father. Everything you need to know to fulfill this mission that we're on together Like, I'm disclosing that to you. There's relational intimacy here. You know, that's that's friendship. The friend isn't the one, like, you don't have to, with your friend, say, I wonder how they're going to hear this, or I wonder if they're going to take this out of context. You just get to tell them. And Jesus is saying, I've told you. Yeah, you obey, but I'm letting you know my purposes, my plans, what we're up to together. There's a relationship there's a, there's a communal nature to this love. It isn't just functional. It's interpersonal. And finally, it's missional. It's not just communal. It's not just sacrificial. It's missional. Look at verses 16 and 17. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide So that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Uh, Lest you think that Jesus' communal love creates this kind of like us for no more holy huddle kind of mentality. Like just, you know, the, the good old boys club. He reminds them like, hey, by the way, even though we are in strong relationship together, we still have a mission to accomplish. He said, you didn't choose me. At the end of the day, I chose you, and listen to this word, I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. The word appointed is the same word that's used in the rest of the New Testament to talk about setting somebody aside for special ministry. Jesus is saying of every one of his followers, they've been called into his ministry. The ministry of what? The ministry of fruit bearing. Now, that begs the question, though. Fruit, we're called to bear fruit. Uh, what is the, the fruit that's been talking about here? Well, Jesus has indeed talking about, been talking about the fruit of love for one another. Indeed, I'm not denying that. But I want you to know that here he seems to be talking about the effect of that fruit of love with one another, one another which is this. More people coming to find life in the vine. It's not just good grapes, but more grapes. Jesus is saying that as you love one another in this way, the the vine will continue to grow and more fruit will be produced. Not just the fruit of Christ's likeness, but the fruit of conversions. Not just the fruit of good works, but the fruit of gospel advance. Do you get what I'm saying? And he's saying it's not just going to be temporary fruit, it's going to be fruit that remains, abides, stays on the vine. I 
time is, is escaping me, but I would just have you remember that just simply from the book of John. In John chapter 4, Jesus called when he was talking about the revival that took place with the woman at the well in Samaria. He says, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. He considered the people being converted in that village, that Samaritan village, fruit. In John 12, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's saying, my death will produce fruit. It will produce converts. Paul talks about his desire in Romans 1, 13 to see fruit among the Romans. And then in John, when he's writing about the 144,000 who will be redeemed during the tribulation. This is what he says of them. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Yes, we're looking for the fruit of Christ-likeness, which is love. But that love leads to conversions. He's going to pray it in John 17. He's going to pray that the world would see the unity between Christ and His people so that they would also know that unity. Verses 20 through 23. John 17, 20 to 23. So, uh, brothers and sisters, whatever your conception of love for the brethren may have been up to this point, I want you to know that it must at least be marked by sacrifice, inclusion, and mission. We're not just hanging out. We're trying to do the work that he's given us to do. That's why we showed that video today. Just to remind us, it's just a simple reminder that we're all in on this. You, you enabled me and Noah and some others. I mean, like we went, but we're trying to do way more of this together as a church. We want to see fruit, not just a bunch of nice people, but new people coming into the family of God. Like we have a mission, but all of this is a byproduct of love. Notice how he ends. These things I command you so that you will love one another, so that you will love one another. I'm done. I'm out of time. But can I tell you about a dilemma that I face every week when I preach to you? Welcome to my world for a second. I, I, it's like I'm going to turn the podium around and let you feel the pressure of something. There's two great problems that I have every week that I have to overcome to be faithful in doing what I'm supposed to do with you. You ready? What they are? Getting it right and getting it across. Getting it right and getting it across. Getting it right is just making sure that I'm telling you what the Bible actually says. Like, it's it's being factual. Like, not saying more than the text says. You can almost imagine it like a a dartboard and, time to use some math terms, like a y-axis and an x-axis. Like, the getting it right is the up and down. I can throw the dart too high, I can throw it too low, you know, but I've got to get the message right. I've got to tell you what the text is saying. But at the same time, I can miss this thing left or right as well. That's getting it across. Like, I have to tell it to you in a way that you understand and that you can do something with it. How many of you know what it's like, you know, like, man, that dude got it right, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with that. And then sometimes it's the other way around where the guy, like, gets the thing right. I mean, excuse me, he gets it across, but he doesn't get it right. It it would be something like this. Five steps to a better love one another life. Three tips and tricks for friendship in the life of the church. 
You hear some great moral advice, and it's like, man, this is relevant. This, I can nail this this week, but it has nothing to do with the text. So we got to do both. And here's where I'm left today. Like, I, 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 think, I think we got it right. It's just tough getting across because Jesus doesn't say, here's the stuff that you got to do to do this. Like, he's, he's pretty vague about what this love is would look like on your to-do list this week. And so I don't want to over-prescribe. So let me try to summarize what I think is right, and then let me make an attempt to get it across in a way that would be faithful. Here's the summary. Don't write this down. Just listen. Listen to the logic so far. Let's make sure we understand this, and then I'll give you something that I think is practical and faithful and not overstepping my bounds. Here's what we know. Those who continually derive life from the Son will produce fruit. Agreed? Second, this fruit is first and foremost obedience to the Son's commands. Agreed? Three, these commands are first and foremost about loving one another like Jesus loved us. Follow me? All right, last. This love for one another like Jesus loved us is marked by sacrifice, inclusion, and mission. Make sense? You see it there? All right, so that's what we know. Here's what we do. We grow. We obey. We initiate love. In what ways? Very simply, sacrificially, communally, Missionally, I, I say this to you kindly, uh, clearly. Friends, our commitment to fight for one another's highest good will cost us something. If whatever it is you think your ministry is to other people here, it just kind of like, just kind of goes, just kind of happens. You may not be loving one another in the way that Jesus has commanded. I get it. You're probably not going to push somebody out of the way of a speeding bus and die on their behalf. But you will probably at least sacrifice your own convenience or your own pride to do what's best for them. And what that will require from you, at least fundamentally, is some level of commitment to them. And some level of intentionality with them. We're so accidental, haphazard. Like, all right, well, if the right person comes along, maybe I'll do something nice. And yet what we've covenanted to do together as a church is to be intentional about pursuing one another with good works. And I get it. We have limitations. There's 260 members here. Last time I counted, you can't do that to all other 259 of them. But hear me well, please. You can do it to at least one of them. I I know that seems like I'm being a minimalist. But frankly, if we would just show this kind of sacrificial love to at least somebody outside of our own family that's in the body of Christ, it'd be a step in the right direction. And that requires sacrifice. Is your one another love sacrificial? Second, is it communal? I say this to myself. I say it quickly. The life, of, the life and body of Christ is not just about getting junk done for Jesus. This is not a business. It's a family. And this is the area in which I struggle the most, and I see it. I see it here. I see the the negative impacts of my own leadership. One pastor wrote about people in the church. I want you to think about this for a moment, about people sitting in the congregation just like this. Loneliness doesn't exist only in the world, but it is found within the church as well. 
Consider the words of one older woman who wrote to me, I sit in the pew next to a warm body every week, but I feel no heat. I'm in the faith, but I draw no act of love. I sing the hymns with those next to me, but I hear only my own voice. When the service is finished, I leave as I came in, hungry for someone to touch me, to tell me that I'm a person worth something to somebody. Just a smile would do it, or perhaps some gesture, some sign that I am not a stranger here. I think, I think that there are truly some lonely people here because some of us have not embraced the communal nature of love. And I'm telling you, and I don't have time to be too vulnerable because I'm out of time, but it is my greatest failure as a leader. Mine. Ask my kids, ask the elders that work with me, ask the staff that works with me. You pray for me. I am so much about the missional part of it and not the communal part of it that I come to a text like this and I'm like, well, John, I don't know what to do. Do I not preach this Sunday? And the only thing I know to do is to say, I've confessed it to the Lord and I'm praying for his grace. But some of you probably need to do the same. You're just so ready to get on to the next thing that you don't have time to be present with people. You're all about productivity, but not about relationship. Jesus called us into family relationship, friendship. It should be something warm and loving and inviting. And then lastly, if you are strong in that, please don't forget to take the next step. It isn't just about us. This is not the Christian country club. We're on a mission. And that is to see fruit. And there needs to be intentionality in our evangelism, both here and in what we're trying to do around the world. Some of you will be strong with the communal part, but not good with the missional part. Some of you will be good at the missional part, but not good at the communal part. But here's the deal. Sacrifice is required for all of it. Here's the last thing I say, and I'm done. None of it, none of this love happens apart from verses 1 through 8. And that is ensuring that we've already received his love in Jesus. Friends, don't walk out of here thinking like this is your moral to-do list. This is the advance on the truth that assumes that you're getting your life from Jesus and what he's accomplished for you. If you don't have that, you don't have growth. No grace, no growth. No love received means no love displayed. So let us first revel in his love, his amazing love for us. And then display that first and foremost to one another. Sacrificially, communally, missionally. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your grace and your help. We didn't even give it the attention that it deserves, but you said here that when we ask for whatever it is that we need for this mission, you will give it us. So we we ask for the fruit of this kind of love to mark us here in this place and thereby be effective in seeing the gospel go forward to others. Amaze us with your love, and may we now live it out in obedience and in love to one another this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.